Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. for another dip into the slime bucket. I am Robert M. Price, the Lovecraft Geek. It's great to be with you again, and uh, great to chew on some of these terrific uh, comments and questions. Uh, I hope to impart a little understanding here, but I have to admit I have a selfish motive in that I learn all kinds of neat stuff from, uh, from folks that write in and keep up the good work. Paul W. writes, On episode 6, you talked about the correct pronunciation or pronunciations of Cthulhu. I just wanted to point out a possibly interesting, possibly random connection I made there. You said Lovecraft said that the first syllable was sort of like clue, and since I have a vague familiarity with linguistics, I thought immediately of a specific sound he might have had in mind, a lateral L. A lateral L is a sound that is very rare in human languages. Uh, Navajo, Catalan, and uh, Nahuatl, uh, also known as Aztec, are the only languages I know of that contain it. And it's made by touching the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth and letting air hiss around the sides of the tongue. I can easily see someone coming up with kth as the closest equivalent. The reason I thought of this is that there's at least one other example of the sound being used in alien speech because of its incredible strangeness to English speakers. It's the sound represented by the KL at the beginning of the word Klingon. I know there isn't really a question in there, but I thought you might find it interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, now, I bet you're a whiz when it comes to learning the Klingon language. Right? It's amazing to me that somebody used Tolkien-like industry and ingenuity to create the language. I, I have never studied it. I'm just um, content to uh, leave it at a bad Lieutenant Worf uh, imitation. Uh, Klingon. But I think you're right, and in fact, the way Lovecraft uh, says to pronounce it, he does go into a bit more detail, and I, I think he describes it in very similar terms, like how to position your tongue and your palate and all that stuff to say, Clulu, and as S.T. Joshi does, who is more of a stickler than I, at least on that. I'm obsessive, compulsive about other things, but um, yeah, it, uh, either that's a spontaneous parallel or he knew about it, and uh, yeah, I bet you that is right. That's, uh, I think you got it pegged there. For a second, I thought you were going to say Klaatu instead of Klingon, but uh, who knows, yeah. Thanks, Paul. Eric says, in episode 8, you mentioned, there have been that many of them? Uh, you mentioned that you would love an action figure based on a character from the Dunwich Horror. My question is, have there ever been action figures based on Lovecraft characters? 
Well, there are um, a few plush uh, critters that I think Toy Vault put out, and I'm sure they're still readily available. I think they have like a gug or a ghoul or not a ghoul, a ghast or something from uh, uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, I didn't happen to care too much for those, but I tell you, two I really love. They have various sizes of Cthulhu, and I have the smallest one, and I just think it they're all fine, but I really love that one. I just uh, think that's Cthulhu. They also did a great one of the Avatar of Darkness from uh, The Whisperer, and no, from the, uh, the Haunter of the Dark. That is just terrific, and I'm proud to have that. Uh, I think they... No oh boy, I can't even remember what uh, one or two other ones they did. Did they do a Night Gaunt? I don't know. These are the only two I happen to like, but that's purely subjective. I would check out. Uh, I'd look on like uh, Big Bad Toy Store uh, or um, some of these other online action figure outfits search uh, function, and or you could uh, Google uh, Lovecraft action figures uh, or the Lovecraft plush toys. I'm sure you'd turn up stuff. There is a hard plastic Cthulhu that um, somebody made. I can't uh, can't quite remember. Uh, it's pretty neat. I, I have the the dark green one. Uh, my daughter got the black one, uh, but um, it, it, the pose could have been a bit better. It's a little uh, too bent over and close to the ground. Uh, for me, but that's uh, pretty minor. It's really, they really did an excellent job on it. And this was some years ago now, a few years ago. I'm, I'm hoping they'll do some more of them, but I, I've seen no signal of it. I have, uh, my green one, uh, stuck smack dab in the middle of my Conan action figure shelf. Uh, you should see it. Uh, you know, all the nifty, um, Frank Frazetta and other uh, Conan covers from the Lancer books of the of the uh, the sixties. I made color Xeroxes of those and uh, uh, taped them up on the back of the bookcase shelf, and uh, and then I have uh, various of the Todd McFarlane Conan and uh, uh, other. Uh, Similar figures, uh, Zaltoden and uh, Conan on the Throne and stuff like that. Um, and uh, uh, what's Zuleika, I think, and Belit, the, the Valeria, and so on. And uh, there, uh, th that looks pretty neat. But there's Cthulhu right in the middle, so I guess he's a fellow Weird Tales uh, entity. Unfortunately, there's no story I know of where Cthulhu and Conan tangle, but boy, it'd be pretty neat. Um, of course, I guess we could try it and get sued. But um, I mentioned another time my, uh, in my study, I have a different sword and sorcery shelf with three Conans and a couple of Thongors, one Steranko, one uh, Frazetta, Elac of Atlantis, and several other ones. Oh, boy, it's great. I love that genre. I can never de decide which I like better, Howard or Lovecraft, but I guess it doesn't much matter. I guess I'm a die-theist. Uh, but uh, there, I'm sure you could find one of those. Uh, it's great stuff, and I hope there will be more. 
Uh, Jason Wren says, In my early teens, I was introduced to H.P. Lovecraft by my heavy metal friends. It seems the old gent had a profound effect on bands in that genre. Songs like Metallica's Call of Cthulhu and The Thing That Should Not Be. I believe that's Henry Kuttner's Niagara, right? Uh, really, or I, I tend to use that uh, as a... Um, epithet for Roseanne Barr, or whatever her name is currently. Uh, These songs really piqued my interest to search out the source of inspiration. I was just wondering if there was any Lovecraft-inspired music that you were particularly keen on. Well, I uh, sure like uh, the darkest of the hillside thickets. I think they do a great job. There's also a collection of work by various people, Strange Eons, I like that a bunch. And uh, I have to admit, I'm largely ignorant of what's out there. The, I think the Metallica songs are pretty good. But uh, one I like is by a Mexican group. Uh, I guess the group, but certainly the CD, uh, is entitled Shub Nigurath. That has a real good sense of mythos chaos and, and to me is not uh, an assault on the ears as some other uh, of the music in the same genre is. Uh, so, uh, again, I'm not the best one to ask, but those are the few things that stick with, with me. Hmm. Uh, and uh, let me just fold into this Brian Rapinski's question. Can you recommend any Lovecraft mythos-inspired music? How about good music to read mythos tales by? Well, let me just add uh, uh, about the background music. I have read stuff by Lovecraft with uh, the soundtrack of Ghost Story on the back, uh, on in the background, and um, also uh, that from the Dead Zone. I think those would be nice and eerie. But I guess really, uh, I haven't done this yet, but I got the soundtrack for the the Bride of Frankenstein. I bet you that'd be great, nice and weird and eerie. Uh, those would be uh, be good good ones. I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones. Hmm, this from Capricious, I think it's like Capricious with uh, K's instead of C's, let's let's hope so. Found this one first, but have been enjoying several of your other podcasts. My favorite Lovecraft story is The Dunwich Horror, with Call of Cthulhu and Shadow of Arinsmith running a close second. I have a Lovecraft question, and a question I'm not sure where else it would go to, may as well ask it here. On Lovecraft, do we have a personal bibliography of what books and materials he read and owned? I suppose many things from his early life may have been lost to him and knowledge of them to us. Well, in fact, you're in luck, because Necronomicon Press, many years ago, did uh, a work called, uh, I think, just Lovecraft's Library. And I believe it's been updated. I know there were updates to it in issues of uh, Lovecraft Studies, so that was also many years ago. But uh, I bet you that would still be available. I'm not sure if Maddie Michaud still has it in print or not, but she would be the the one to ask. And um, uh, that uh, has an incredibly comprehensive list of, of all manner of books. And, of course, to narrow it down to the weird fiction field, you could always look at his classic essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, uh, which tells us what he thought of a whole bunch of uh, great stuff in, in that vein. Okay, my second question is about Oedipus Rex. I was fortunate enough to have a fifth-grade teacher. 
who read many and various stories to our class once a week. Oedipus Rex happened to be one of them. Now that I say that, it surprises me that it slipped by the parents and interest groups without apparent commentary. I guess it was okay. I don't recall any scars from the story. I saw a BBC modern adaptation of the play from the 1980s, if memory serves, and I was inspired to read the story for myself. By the way, I don't know if that was the one with uh, Patrick Stewart as Oedipus. I caught a bit of that on TV once. Uh, I was just, uh, and by the way, did uh, you know a great lost opportunity was that uh, Lynn Carter never followed up on the Mad Magazine style uh, version of Oedipus Rex modeled on the Wizard of Oz. He had a few uh, bits that he sang uh, in my hearing, like uh, "We've got a big complex, which complex? The Oedipus Rex, etc." And uh, or another one, "It's rough, believe me, Mister, when your daughter is your sister." But it's uh, tough, believe me, brother, when you're married to your mother, and so forth. But that's all I remember. Sorry. Anyway. I was wondering what the poly geek might say the moral of the tale was. Seems to me that it is warning about self-fulfilling prophecies. It seems um, at three critical points of the story, decisions are based on the warning of the oracle on the fate of Oedipus. And when these decisions, um, consequences follow, they propel the tragic figure through the... Uh, styles of fate. If the oracle had been ignored at each point, the tragic consequences could not have followed. Hmm. Uh, oh boy, uh, you may have opened Pandora's box here. It seems to me on the surface, this uh, play is just incredibly profound about the ironies of life, whether you believe in a literal force of fate or not. Because the I did a sermon or two about this uh, long ago. Uh, the the idea is that the very steps you take to avoid something, ironically, may turn out to be the very thing that causes it to happen. And uh, it's I guess something like the gospel saying, whoever would save his life shall lose it, but ever who whoever loses it shall save it. But uh, to me, this is just so profound about the self-defeating character of human endeavor if we don't watch out. Uh, maybe we are um, not trusting enough of life. And we insist on mucking things up. Oh, I know how to fix this. And you're just going to ruin things. I don't know. That's a tough one to apply. But it is like uh, the, the futility of uh, trying to avoid your fate. And um, I, I, it's just so incredible. The, every step taken to avoid this horrific uh, destiny only brings it about. What, what a great, uh, great item. Now, on a deeper level, as Claude Levi-Strauss pointed out in, um, in one of his essays, a great structural anthropologist, he says that you can decode the Oedipus cycle, all of the plays and so on, the three of them, uh, and and find what the deep structure of it is. And he says this is true of any myth or myth cycle. I feel an article coming on here. Anyway, uh, he says that 
every myth or myth cycle can be broken down into a binary pair of opposites, and the opposites are themselves uh, binary oppositions. And he, he, I think you can do the same thing, maybe even more clearly, on the Garden of Eden and Cain and Abel stories in Genesis uh, 2 through 4. But he did it with Oedipus, and he said, uh, what you need to do to find the deep structure in a myth is to ignore the plot line. Uh, and, and one reason for that, that is, it, it's not to say that that's not communicating something too, but uh, the deep structure is what he's after. And he says that... Um, that uh, this is especially helpful when you're dealing with uh, primitive uh, cultures, mythologies, where there doesn't seem to be any plot. And so what is going on? Why are people telling these, quote, stories, unquote? And uh, so uh, he says there is, there is in pre-rational cultures a way of mediating, I believe is the word he uses, dealing with contradictions and and conflicts of ideas that is not a rational balancing and weighing because nobody's figured out how to do that yet but they're dealing in the best way they know how and he says that at the bottom of the Oedipus myth and I would say the Eden myth too is the problem of whether human beings are born from one, as he says, from the the womb of the earth itself, or whether they are born from two, born from humans like themselves, sexually. He says, now this might look ridiculous, but there are many myths that refer, I mean, all over the world, uh, to humans being born directly from the earth. Think of uh, Adam in the Garden of Eden. He's made from the clay of the ground. Uh, so was Enkidu in the Gilgamesh epic. Um, I think in one of juvenile satires, he says, way back at the beginning when men were born right from the ground, and uh, just you can find loads of these things. He says, this has to date back to when people had sex and had kids but didn't yet understand that the one led to the other. Now, that sounds stupid uh, of these primitive people, but of course it is not because it's not immediately obvious that the one has to do with the other because you don't get, a woman doesn't get pregnant every time she has sex. Same thing with animals, right? So, Apparently, and we still tell our kids crazy stuff like, oh, well, uh, mommy and daddy found you in a cabbage patch, having been born directly from the earth. Okay, so uh, people seem to think that at one stage, but they grow out of it. They eventually find out about the birds and the bees and sexual reproduction. Uh, so... What are they going to do? They don't want to betray the cherished belief they inherited of uh, being born directly from Mother Earth, but they can't deny what they now understand about reproductive biology. So what are they going to do? Well, he says that is really the issue, and here's how you can tell. He says you should comb the myth and isolate similar elements 
and line each of those up. Uh, forget about their role in the plot, their order, what they, what their narrative function is for the moment. Let's just pick out similar things and see how they line up. He so says, look at the names. Uh, you've got Oedipus, which seems to mean clubfoot. You've got his, uh, father, Laios, which means, uh, uh, left-handed and, and so forth. I think there's a third one too, labdacos or something that, uh, has a similar meaning. They imply in ancient parlance a kind of, uh, being handicapped. Uh, and, uh, so we got that column. Then we've got earth elementals. We've got the dragon and the sphinx. Okay. Uh, we've also got, um, instances where uh, blood relations are highly valued in uh, Electra. She risks death to see that her brothers get a decent burial. She's like perhaps overvaluing her uh, blood connections, willing to sacrifice her own life so that her brother's already dead, can, can just get a decent burial and uh, so on. Uh, you have... Um, uh, these incest elements, Oedipus unknowingly marries Jocasta, his mother, doesn't know it's his mother. And, uh, and, uh, so that his, his daughter is his sister and so forth. So there is a, a blood relation that is too close for comfort. Well, against these overvaluations of blood relationships, you have elements in the story where their blood relations are undervalued. The Spartai kill one another. Oedipus kills his father, not knowing that it is his father, and so on. Now, how does this uh, settle out into these two binary pairs? Well, he says, um, on the one hand, the handicap names imply difficulty in striding the earth and navigating upon it. Um, on the other hand, you've got the slain earth elementals. He says, what is this? Okay, uh, let's leave it at that for a second. Then with the blood relations, you've got the affirmation of sexual reproduction from fellow humans being highly valued but too highly valued versus blood relations being denigrated ignored or violated uh the two brothers killing one another oedipus killing his father what's the logic symbolically here well human beings come to the point of denying Mother Earth, denying their Earth origin. So they are trampling the Earth beneath their feet. It's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. Right? Uh, and uh, that's Oedipus killing the Sphinx and the Dragon, the Earth symbols. But they cannot successfully get away with it because as they trample the Earth, they're hobbled and crippled. So you can do it but you're going to suffer for it. How? 
Well, you have trampled Mother Earth underfoot by rejecting her soul parenthood and accepting uh, the uh, fact of biological reproduction from your own species. You have highly valued blood family relations, but you're not going to get away scot-free on that one either, because that's going to lead to abuse uh, and and uh, destruction. You know, the worst arguments are family arguments and, and so on. So it's going to lead to death. You got what you wanted, but uh, you got more than you bargained for. So it all has to do with the tragedy of rejecting the Edenic idea of immediate birth from Mother Earth in favor of the secular notion of being born from other humans. You like that? Well, you got it, but you may not like the, uh, the implications. Uh, you can wake up now, uh, but uh, I, I won't put you back to sleep by dealing with the Eden story the same way. Though, if you want to hear about that, I think I deal with that in uh, my um, book, uh, Evolving Out of Eden. Um, but um, this uh, seems to be, on a deep level, what the Oedipus story is about, though it's easy to uh, to uh, forget that. Uh, René Girard has a, an utterly fascinating reading of this also in his book, The Scapegoat. But I've, I've already tried your patience enough. So there's a lot going on uh, in, uh, in Oedipus. Great, great stuff. We've got a big complex. Anyway, uh, okay, this is from Piersquar, Piersquar, butchering this, P-I-R-S-Q-U-A-R. I thought Cthulhu was tough. I was wondering if you were aware of the Lovecraftian nods and winks in the Discworld novels of Terry Pratchett. Never read them, I'm sorry to say. One particular book in the series, Moving Pictures, is extremely Lovecraftian in nature. An old man lives by the sea, performing rites that prevent a horror from returning to the world. After he dies, people unearth a strange, semi-submerged temple filled with corpses, slime, and scuttling, shadowy things. The book also deals with the grimoire, the Necrotelecomicon, the phone book of the dead. Yours in unspeakable horrors. Yeah, it sounds fun. Never read it, though, I'm ashamed to say. I have the, I mean, I got my hands full trying to keep up with, uh, religious studies, uh, and the like. Uh, the, though my first love is, uh, fantasy, horror, science fiction, there is no way I can, uh, cover that, uh, whole field. And, uh, I have very, I mean, I, sometimes people say, oh, you know about all this stuff. Uh, no, I don't. I am a big fan of Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Lynn Carter, Tolkien, uh, and, uh, Lester Dent, Captain Future, uh, Space Opera, the lack of Atlantis, Henry Cutner, and so on, Robert Block, uh, you, you can go on and on, August Erlith, Lumley Campbell, Gary Myers, Laird Barron, Joe Pulver, Cody Goodfellow, and so on and so on. But there's so many other ones out there I simply have not had time to read. So I appreciate these these uh, suggestions and these interesting facts like this. Sounds like a fun book. Maybe I'll have to check it out. I've never read anything by the esteemed Pratchett, though, and that's no judgment on him. It's a bad reflection on me. Hmm... David Haman, I think that's how you say it. Two M's, two N's. 
I think this is the Dave I knew when I lived in New Jersey and he lived in Maryland. He did us the honor of taking quite a trip to come to a couple of our discussion groups that we used to have in our house. But at any rate, what do you think of the theory of Dr. Johann Carlson, an, ar- an archaeoastronomer in Maryland, who believes that Lovecraft's image of Cthulhu, at least the sculpture from the story, came from viewing some pre-Columbian art of monstrous, clawed, Mesoamerican gods squatting on stone blocks, which would have been displayed in New York City while HPL lived there. Uh, But there are no Mesoamerican gods with the head of an octopus. Where do you think the image of Cthulhu's head came from? I think that since Cthulhu is not a god from the nether worlds, but a conqueror of worlds from outer space, HPL might have borrowed the image of H.G. Wells' Martians. The head from HPL's sketch of Cthulhu, you know, he did one in his letters, right? Interesting. Uh, Bears more than a passing resemblance to the original period magazine illustrations of Wells' Martians. Of course, HPL might just have gotten the idea from the personal disgust and horror he would have felt if he had seen a fully grown octopus or squid in a market. Right you are. In fact, if I were doing the the thing... uh, I think uh, Cthulhu would have been a vegetable uh, for the same reasons. But um, let me back up here. Uh, Richard L. Tierney wrote an article someplace that I reprinted. I think it was in Crypt of Cthulhu number nine, which means it ought to be out in uh, the uh, hardcover facsimile reprint uh, edition of the first ten issues next month, I think, uh, that Lance Thingmaker is working on. Uh, in this, uh, it's called Cthulhu in Mesoamerica, and uh, he may have uh, hinted at this. I forget now. It's been so long. That'd be worth looking into. I I caught the tail end of a presentation at the last Necronomicon that I think may be what you're talking about here, but I'm not even sure who it was, not having been able to get there at the start of it. But um, that makes sense to me, and if it was Dr. Carlson, I don't know, whoever this was said that he thought Cthulhu might have been suggested by the Aztec god Tlaloc, and uh, it's admittedly it's not exactly like it, but what the heck, I mean, Lovecraft himself spells it different ways, uh, Tulu and Cthulhu and all that stuff, Um uh, in in different stories, so uh, that makes some sense to me. It, it's like a kind of a reshuffling of the letters, but it still su- suggests the same basic sound. And if <laughs> he was inspired by these sculptures, that uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, we know he was interested in this stuff from uh, uh, the Electric Executioner and uh, and and uh, the transition of Juan Romero and and all that. So. Uh, that's uh, not at all unlikely. And and for the uh, tentacled look, I bet you're right about Wells. Again, I don't know. I'm sure the omniscient S.T. Joshi uh, would would know this. Uh, uh, did everybody see, either in the paper or on Facebook, a New York Times article about S.T.? 
I just saw it on Facebook uh, yesterday or today. Uh, great stuff about a great man. Uh, very, very interesting. It really has more to do with his writings on atheism and agnosticism. But, uh, of course, you know, that fits right into Lovecraft uh, stuff. But uh, it's uh, it's really great. You should take a look at it. I'm sure you can find it online. Personally, I wouldn't uh, use the New York Times for toilet paper otherwise, but they somehow stumbled on something good here. Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, but ST would know, and in fact, I ha- have uh, a bit of input from him on the next question. This is from Gary St. Pierre. Mm, oh, learned one. I recently downloaded and listened to a radio adaptation of Algernon Blackwood's great short story, Ancient Sorceries, in which a traveler stops at a village in France, although the story takes place somewhere near Wales in this particular radio version and slowly discovers that he has a strange and sinister link to the weird inhabitants of the town, despite the fact that, to his knowledge, he's never been there before. Now, since my favorite Lovecraft story is The Shadow Over Innsmouth, I was only about 15 minutes into the radio play before I started seeing some obvious similarities in the two stories. While Blackwood's protagonist is haunted by cats and Lovecraft's Robert Olmsted is horrified by the Batrachian-slash-fish-like deep ones, both stories end with the narrators accepting, if in, if not in fact embracing their fates and returning to the places which before had held such untold repulsion and horror f- for them. Uh, by the way, somebody might ask, Robert Olmsted? What the heck? Uh, well, in Lovecraft's notes, uh, he calls the narrator of The Shadow Over Innsmouth Robert Olmsted, though he never gets around to naming him in the published version, but we all call him that anyway, right? Uh, uh, so my question is kind of two questions. How much was Lovecraft inspired by Blackwood's story, and uh, who inspired Blackwood? You may have already touched on this in an earlier episode. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, being a newcomer to your podcast, I have some catching up to do. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I plead ignorance, but again, I knew someone whom I knew. I know someone whom I knew would know, if I can get that straight. I forwarded your question to the great S.T. Joshi, uh, and uh, he says, uh, I'm quite certain that HPL was inspired by Blackwood's ancient sorceries for the Shadow Over Innsmouth. While there are other tales that talk of man-fish hybrids, Chambers' The Harbor Master, Irvin S. Cobb's Fishhead, by the way, I reprinted those at ST's uh, suggestion in my Chaosium uh, book, uh, The Innsmouth Cycle. The Blackwood story is the only one I know of where an entire town appears to change into animals. So it's definitely an influence. HBL had a copy of John Silence, Physician Extraordinary, 1908, in his library, and of course he discusses it in Supernatural Horror and Literature, 1927, so he clearly read the story before writing Innsmouth. As to where Blackwood himself got the idea, well, I don't know. He did spend time in the small French town where the story takes place, but I have no idea whether he experienced anything odd when he was there. Mike Ashley's biography of Blackwood says nothing about the specific inspiration for the story, aside from the fact that Blackwood did visit the French town. 
Uh, thanks, ST. You know, I bet ST didn't even have to check Mike Ashley's work. Uh, I bet he just has all this stuff pretty much memorized. Um, you know, I got to bring in a, for, I guess, from, what, this, what would this be, the from the sublime to the ridiculous, but I got to bring up uh, a skit I saw back in 79 or 80 on Saturday Night Live starring Buck Henry where he goes to an island doing genealogical research. And he, he goes into this hotel, I guess, and uh, he's asking around, uh, does anyone know so-and-so? He was an ancestor of mine. And, uh, no, can't say that I do. And here's Dan Aykroyd as a doughty fisherman. And uh, his as he's talking, the uh, skin of his neck begins to swell and bloat like he's a frog. And then the same thing with the others in the hotel lobby. And, and uh, uh, Buck remains completely oblivious of this. Well, it is obviously based on the shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, I'd love to know whose idea it was. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if it was Buck Henry's, but Dan Aykroyd, I, I think, is pretty obviously a weird fiction fan, so I'm guessing uh, that was he. Whether this appears on any DVD of Saturday Night Live, I don't know, but uh, it's it was a shock to me to see it. This was right around the time I was getting interested in Lovecraft again after uh, having been off it uh, for a few years. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, from Algernon Blackwood to Dan Aykroyd, okay. Mmm, Tony says, I'm sure I'm not the only one who would love to hear you talk about the Yellow King. Uh, Lovecraft's relationship with this book and how you feel Chambers compares and contrasts with the old gent. Uh, I love the King in Yellow, and, uh, the, I guess there are four stories, uh, in it that, uh, in the collection of chambers work called the king in yellow that deal with that in different ways and of course the the real classic is the yellow sign and uh along with it um the repairer of reputations but there you know a couple of other ones and uh they are all the more effective for the sparseness of the uh the the mentions of this it remains enigmatic and it's great it's just like dave schultz another omniscient lovecraft uh, scholar says about the cthulhu mythos itself that it is most effective when it is a frightening and now you see it now you don't background to stories rather than the stories being about it uh, though you know my conscience bothers me i i have to say that it's simply another Lovecraftian subgenre when when the stories are more explicitly about the old ones and so on, and they can be done very well also. But I, I think uh, Schultz's point uh, certainly applies to the King in Yellow. Less is more. Um, the uh, I find the uh, similarity to be striking between the Yellow Sign and the Mask of the Red Death. I mean, there's a lot of differences, but uh, notice that. And uh, when you look at uh, Roger Corman's movie of uh, of the uh, the Mask of the Red Death, which I think is his masterpiece, he the Red Death uh, plague bearer meets up with several other brother 
diseases, including one in a bright yellow garb. Can't help thinking that's a little Chambers there. I, I tried to bring out the uh, link between the yellow sign and uh, uh, the Mask of the Red Death and a story of mine that's coming out in the Court of the Yellow King collection. Uh, my story is called uh, The Mask of the Yellow Death. And uh, anyway, uh, I think that Joe Pulver is right in pointing out that it's uh, important to disentangle Lovecraft from Chambers. The way August Derleth composed the mythos, he seemed to think that every tip of the hat Lovecraft made to the works of other horror writers meant that he was adopting their creations into his myth system. And that's why the Hounds of Tindalos are considered to be among the great old ones, because uh, the narrator of The Whisperer in Darkness says that Akeley told him about a whole bunch of things, Azathoth on the one hand, the Hounds of Tindalos on the other, and the Yellow Sign. And uh, we're, we're left simply to imagine that there are a whole bunch of weird, unguessed secrets out there uh, to which Akeley has uh, now become privy thanks to his dealings with the uh, fungoid, what the heck, fungoid crustaceans from Yuggoth. And I don't think uh, we're we're really intended to link them all together exactly. In a way, I suppose that's a temptation, but it sort of belies the whole point that there's this universe of bizarre entities and phenomena out there, and to, to link them together in a tidy way seems to restrict them and remove the otherworldly, mind-blowing intent here. Um, obviously, Chambers is not referring to Lovecraft, but uh, Lovecraft is only referring to Chambers. We know he loved uh, the, the King in Yellow, uh, cycle, such as it was, four stories, and it was his kind of thing. And so it is interesting to hybridize the two, but it's it's demeaning to uh, Chambers' work to see it as some kind of a subsection of Lovecraft. It really is a different thing that needs to be val evaluated and valued in its own right to really see the, the brilliance and the effect of it. And I, I wouldn't want to, and it's the same sort of thing where we don't want to subsume Lovecraft's work into the myth system of August Derleth. I mean, while we're reading Derleth, we do, but we don't want Derleth in mind while we're reading Lovecraft. I, I am not a Derleth basher. I, I thoroughly enjoy his work. I admit it's uh, it doesn't have quite the kick Lovecraft does. He's not the stylist Lovecraft does, but there's plenty to like, and I sure do like it. Uh, but you got to draw these lines so that you uh, appreciate the distinct flavor of each one. And uh, so if you, I would say, if you like Lovecraft, you're going to like Chambers. If you like Chambers, you're going to like Lovecraft. It's sort of important not to, uh, to mix them up. Now, could we go further and say that, uh, yeah, yeah, we'd have to do the same thing with, with uh, Chambers and Ambrose Bierce because the King in Yellow mythology is, is uh suggestive and uh, purposely vague as it is obviously incorporates some interesting stuff from uh, from uh, beers i mean very important things 
yet are you supposed to read uh, the strange what is it, the death of Halp and Chalmers and uh, Halp and Fraser? I'm getting them mixed up with uh, with uh, Frank Long here, who he inspired. Are you supposed to read the Beer's Tale and think, oh yeah, I know what this is. This is part of the King in Yellow mythos. No, 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 you're not. Uh, when you read the next stage, it helps to see the uh, the intertextuality with the earlier author. But in my opinion, it is you're, you're going to cheat yourself if by reading the earlier one, you're um, taking as background something written later that uses him. I mean, that's an interesting experiment. It's on a different level. It's like. How are you going to introduce your kids to the Star Wars movies? Are you going to let them see them in the order of Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, uh, the way uh, that um, that uh, Lucas wants you to, uh, to, to view them since he re-edited the earlier ones to make them fit? Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting experiment. Maybe you should. Uh, but, uh, having seen them as they came out, I cannot help thinking uh, that the real thing is the original trilogy and the other is an imagine, is related only in the manner of a sequel. That it, the original did not presuppose this, but if you want to use your imagination and speculate, well, this is a lot of fun. So you can read them back to front or front to back, obviously, but I find it, uh, it, I guess I'm just saying that I think it's a you're cheating yourself of appreciation if you see one simply as a function of the of the other. Uh, so I guess that's enough uh, gusting on about uh, about that. Here's one where I don't really want to give an answer yet, uh, but I want to give a tease here. Vulpine says, as a fan of eldritch horror and classical history, I wonder if anyone has expanded on or referenced the dream letter, dream slash letter, the very old folk. Um, I uh, believe I have a mini essay on that in my, uh, my, uh, annotated edition of Lovecraft, um, that would be in Tales of Terror, the juvenilia and marginalia of Lovecraft, the fifth volume in the series, but this hasn't come out yet, and uh, Chaosium was supposed to do it years ago and dropped it for uh, permissions reasons, which I think no longer obtain. Uh, then uh, Centipede Press asked to do it, but then decided they didn't want to. Uh, so I may uh, see if the good folks at Chaosium, a new administration, would be interested in it. If not, I may publish it myself. Um, but uh, uh, maybe I will look up what I said about it all those years ago and uh, tell you next time, but uh, let me just tease you there for that one. Um, but Volpine goes on to say, I found a few sword and sandal mythos tales, chief among them the works of Richard Tierney. Do you have any other leads to authors who mix tentacles and togas? Oh, boy, I wish I could think, but I cannot because tyranny looms so large in my mind that way. Because, you know, of course, he did the Simon of Gitta stories collected in uh, my uh, Chaosium book, The Scroll of Thoth, Tales of Simon, Magus, and the Great Old Ones. And there's also the two novels 
uh, drums of chaos, which is just great. And, uh, and also, uh, the gardens of Lucullus by, um, by, uh, Tierney and, uh, Glenn Raymond, which is just terrific also. Uh, let's see. Uh, and, and of course the Red Sonia books that he teamed up with Dave Smith to write. Uh, others must have, but there's so much, uh, sword and sorcery stuff out there that I, that has gotten past me. I couldn't say. I welcome comments from anybody that can make some more suggestions. And that's a good opportunity for me to, uh, mention that I have a sword and sorcery anthology that uh, is not unlikely to appear from uh, Chaosium, though I don't think it's nailed down yet, uh, called uh, uh, The Mighty Warriors, I believe it is. It's a kind of a nod to Hans Stefan Santessen's book, The Mighty Swordsman of the Mighty Barbarians. And I've uh, collected uh, uh, a new uh, Elac story by uh, Adrian Cole, um, an Oran's story by uh, uh, David Smith, a Dragon Lord story by Chris Henderson, uh, one of my Thongor pastiches, and uh, uh, an Imaro story, and a bunch of really good stuff. I'm really pleased with it, and uh, so uh, you'll eventually be seeing that. I'm proud of it, and I got another one in the works. Well, that's it for the slime bucket today, but uh, please send in some more questions, and if you'd care to donate to the uh, upkeep of the old uh, Price Mance, you're welcome to uh, click the donate button on my website, uh, which is robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Um, Mindvender is spelled M-I-N-D-V-E-N-D-O-R. So robertmprice.mindvender.com. There you can read a bunch of my articles, stories, sermons, reviews, and all kinds of stuff. And um, uh, so at any, and at any rate, I depend upon you for questions. Hope you'll send a bunch in. And I'll see you soon again on The Lovecraft Geek. The Lovecraft Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix. Catch up with Mike Davis and Mythos Communities Everywhere by devouring the free online Lovecraft e-zine at lovecraftzine.com for events, news, and information. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to The Lovecraft Geek on iTunes. To catch up with Dr. Price's projects, purchase merchandise, and donate to help support Dr. Price and his family, please visit robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Thanks for listening to The Lovecraft Geek. I'm Torin Atkinson. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.